this morning we come to, to what is the last major topic in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so we're talking now about the, the resurrection. Not, not particularly Christ's resurrection, though that's where he's going to begin. And we'll see that this week and certainly next week. But he's, the, the real issue with the Corinthian church is that future bodily resurrection of believer will have people and so and, and the hope that that gives to believers and so one day we will be raised like Christ and 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 our souls will be rejoined to our bodies that have that so so bodies that have been now raised from death transformed uh, fitted for eternity uh, in the likeness of Christ's resurrection and so this is what we believe as Christians and so this is what Christians have always believed and always confessed. And so remember, we did our study on the Apostles' Creed and walked through that uh, a couple years ago now. Um, and, and as we did that, remember, there is that's very specific in there. I believe in the resurrection of the body. So this is a fundamental uh, Christian doctrine, the, the doctrine of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of of people, and so since the wages of sin is death, and since we're all sinners, we know that death is an inevitability. It's going to happen, and so try as we might, we can't escape the reality of death. the 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 death rate remains staggeringly high worldwide. Uh, it's it's hovering right around a hundred percent still, and so it is it is a certainty that we all have to face. And so whether it's through something sudden and violent and evil like a mass shooting that we've we've witnessed now twice in the last uh, week or so or whether it's in a quiet nursing home room as an aged body just slowly begins to shut down whether it's uh, a tiny invisible virus like COVID or whether it's uh, uh, this this powerful storm and tornado like we've we've seen uh, recently whether it's a car accident whether it's cancer we're constantly confronted with the reality of death. It's everywhere. Sometimes it's, it's sort of remotely, and we see it in the headlines, um, and sometimes it's, it's very personal, and we, we get a phone call in the middle of the night. It wakes us up, and, and you hear the voice on the other end trembling, and you know, here, here death is facing, facing. So to ignore death is dangerous, and honestly, it's impossible, because it's, it's everywhere. It's not an option. So... In the face of this great enemy, death, Paul anchors the Christian's hope in this certainty of a future resurrection of our bodies. That's, that's what's at stake here. And so just as Jesus died and rose from the dead three days later, so too we will be raised to new life when Jesus comes again to judge the world, raise the dead, make all things new. This is, this is our hope. And so at death or our bodies and souls are temporarily separated. But that's not how we're made. We're made to be embodied souls. Remember, we did that Sunday school series on embodiment theology. Pastor Flintoff walked us through that. But in the resurrection, God gloriously reunites body and soul for eternity. This is, this is, what's, this is our hope. And so this is why Paul's discussion in this chapter on the resurrection of the body in 1 Corinthians 15, it's so important because it's in this resurrected state that we're going to live for eternity on the new heaven and new earth. So we have, we have to, we have to, this, there's a lot at stake here. Now we ask, why is he, why is he dealing with this? It's not just out of nowhere. It's because there were problems in the church in Corinth as it related to their thoughts on this, this hope. There were serious problems. There were problems for, this, the, 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 the 
future bodily resurrection was a big problem for Greeks in Corinth. And honestly, our day, it's not much different. We, people still choke on this. They, they, had the, they had been taught their whole lives that at death, the soul, which was the, the pure spirit part of the person, and therefore it's good, that's finally set free and liberated from the prison house of the body, which is that, that material and therefore evil part of us. So they, they saw these at, at odds with one another. So to pagans in Corinth, death was seen almost like a good thing. Finally, finally, we're rid of our bodies with the, the source of all our bad habits and evil desires and all the things that are wrong with us. We just got to shed this body and then we'll be pure and free. That's how they thought. And so this is what you see behind you. Look down at verse 12, which will be next week. But how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the reason he asked that because some of them were say, beginning to say and think there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no future bodily resurrection of the dead. And so they're, they're waffling on this basic Christian belief. And so Paul writes to them because they're being shaped more by paganism than by the gospel. That's what we've seen throughout this letter. This is part of the reason is these recent new converts. They're still immature. They're still growing in their and they're they're. Again, their, their thoughts, their thinking, their attitudes towards one another, as we've seen, their, their views of the church, their views of themselves, their views of sin, their views of, 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 of every, everything, the world, they're being shaped far more by their old paganism than they are by the gospel. And so Paul wants to come back and he wants them to see everything in life, everything in life through the lens of the gospel, to think about it through those ways. And so certainly this is the case here. And so, so they, they, but, but they had this thought that the dead... The dead are not going to be raised, not bodily, maybe a spiritual resurrection or something, but 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 that the, the souls are going to exist forever as these just kind of disembodied spirits. And so that's how they that's how they thought. But this is what where Paul begins. And this is why it's a timely place for us to be as we get approach Easter next Sunday is he begins by saying the hope and certainty of our future bodily resurrection it rests on and it cannot be separated from the reality of Christ's past bodily resurrection. This is where he begins. And we'll, we might have something to say about that next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, but we have something to say about it today. And so the big question, the big issue in this chapter is, is the future resurrection of our bodies. There's, there's no indication that they were necessarily doubting Christ's resurrection, uh, at least by confession, they, 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 they believe that because they're believers, but the two cannot be separated. And this is where Paul, this is where Paul starts. So here's where he does. In verses 1 to 11, what we're looking at today, he's simply defining the gospel very clearly. This is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that they affirm, that they believe, that they stand in. This is, what he, this is where he starts with them. He starts on this common ground. And at the very heart of the gospel is what? It's the empty tomb. Christ's resurrection. And then in verses 12 to 19, he, he, he's going to, what we'll see next week on Easter Sunday, he's going to lay out the absolute necessity of the empty tomb. So we'll see that next week. Then in verses 20 to 28, he's going to speak about the, the relationship of, of the bodily resurrection of believers with the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and see how those are connected. And then in verses 29 to 34, he's going to talk about the importance of the resurrection in terms of our Christian living now, how does that future hope affect how we live today? So he's going to deal with that. And then finally, he's going to talk about 
the, our, our future resurrection bodies and the nature of those bodies at the end of the letter, at the end of the chapter, excuse me. So, so here, verses 1 to 11, he's just simply setting forth with this incredible clarity, this summary of the Christian gospel. And so sometimes uh, you hear expressions like this today. I was thinking about this as, as we, we speak and with the certainty and of, of what Paul's going to say about the gospel here. But you hear words and expressions, and these are awful new expressions that I hear a lot today. But things like uh, my truth and your truth as in this kind of relative view of truth. Or uh, one I recently heard is truthy or factish. Um, truthy or factish. So if something's truthy, it's, it's plausible, um, even though it's, it's not, um, even though the argument or the story is in fact quite untrue. It's not truth, but it's truthy. Uh, or it's factish. Something's factish with if, if there's enough fact woven in to make it sound plausible or credible, even if it's not actually all factual. And so we, we have these kind of qualifiers. Where we're looking for this kind of gray area. And Paul's going to show in these verses the gospel's not truthy. It's not factish. It's truth. It's true. It's fact. And you can stake your life and you can stake your eternity upon it. This is how certain it is. Certain. So you see in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of what? Of the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel. These are brothers, so he's writing to believers, people he regards as brothers and sisters in Christ, people who believe the gospel. But he's saying, I need to remind you again. Remind you again. We need reminders all the time, don't we? I don't know about you. My mind, as the older I get, I feel like it's a colander or something like that. And, and it just doesn't hold, uh, hold things well. And so I have my phone. I have every event that goes on. I'm setting alerts and reminders to say, hey, give me uh, two-day notice, uh, you know, two-hour notice, 30-minute notice, so I don't miss an event or miss a meeting or an appointment or something like that. And some of you have probably been on the receiving end of me missing uh, meetings or appointments. And forgive me if that's the case. But... Um, but, but I have to set up these reminders because I get sidetracked, I get distracted, I, I, I just forget. And so Paul's writing to remind these Corinthians, to remind us. Why? Because we forget. We forget. We, we lose sight of, we get distracted from just something as plain and simple as the gospel. And so he wants us to get on message and to stay on message. So this is what he's doing. He's reminding us of the gospel, and he tells us four things that we need to remember. First, in verses 1 to 3. We need to remember the, the unique nature of the gospel. Remember the unique nature of it. What, what kind of thing is the gospel? We use that word all the time, and we hear it all the time in evangelicalism, which is evangelist gospel. So we, we hear this as this descriptor, and it, it means everything under the sun anymore. And, and yet Paul's very specific. But what kind of thing is the gospel? We can say a few things. One, the gospel is a message. It's a message. This is like how he writes in verse 1 and 2. The gospel that I, I preach to you, which you receive this word that I preach to you. The gospel is a word. It's an announcement. It's a, it's a message, a message with specific content. It's not anything and everything. No, so, so, so it's, it's this definite thing. It's this message. We can't. Listen, we cannot, I know people talk like this, we don't do the gospel. We cannot live the gospel. We cannot be the gospel. 
No, what can we do? We can believe the gospel. We can understand the gospel. We can proclaim the gospel. We can speak the gospel. But it's a message. And so it's an announcement. I know that may sound basic, but there's so much confusion on this point alone in our day. And so it, this is the first thing we know. It's a word. The word, uh, it, it's, an, it's not an adjective. It's not a verb. It's, it's most basically a noun. It's, it's, this, it's not it's something very definite, something with very specific content. And we'll talk about that content in a moment. So that's the first thing, what it is. Second, in terms of the nature that we need to remember, the gospel is not invented. It's not invented. Look how he speaks. It's not created, not conceived by people. It's something that has what? It's been revealed by the Lord, been delivered, received from the Lord. So verse three, I delivered to you what? What I also received. Paul's saying, in other words, I didn't make it up. I didn't make this up. There's no creativity on Paul's part regarding the, the content of the message that is the gospel. He's simply a herald of a message from the king. That's what he's saying. I, I delivered only what I received. The herald doesn't intrude himself and his narrative into the message. He doesn't intrude his own opinion, his own version of the message. That's not the job of the herald. Well, Paul's very, this very um, uh, specific language that he's using here, technical language. He's just saying, I'm, I'm communicating the king's message. It's not the herald's message. I'm simply delivered what I received. So Paul received a message, faithfully delivered the message. Listen, anytime we add to, modify, or, or take away from the simple apostolic gospel, that gospel that was delivered from the Lord to the apostles, we diminish the power of the gospel. We're not helping it out. So we're simply, we're simply to keep on delivering what Paul received. And this is the next point. The gospel is powerful. And, that, and that's the, the next thing we see. The gospel has the power to save. The second, third thing we need to see in terms of the nature of the gospel that we need to remember. The gospel that I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. It's a watershed verse in this letter. By, by this gospel or through this gospel, you are saved or you are being saved. It's present tense. So now there are there are those who've wrongly taken this verse as this kind of proof text for Arminian uh, theology, essentially, and, 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 a, and a proof text for the fact that maybe we can fall away from the faith. And so you, you believed and you you've you've not held fast. And so you've fallen away and now you're no longer a believer. Hold tight on hold on tight or you'll lose your salvation and be damned. Some have taken this verse to mean something like that. That's not at all what Paul's saying. That's not how he's addressing this. Others have just tried to make this as, as, as if he's trying to cause them to, to doubt or question their salvation. No, that's not it. He's writing to them as brothers, as believers. He's, again, recent converts struggling in their Christian maturity, trying to leave behind their non-Christian ways of living and thinking. And so he tells these people, you need to hold fast. What you've been to, to that which has saved you, the gospel. He acknowledges there there will be weeds among the genuine plants in the church, the vast majority of genuine plants. So I I get that those who've never really believed the gospel, they've they've rejected the contents of the message. But what he's really doing is he's calling us to keep holding fast to the gospel, to this message, 
holding fast to what Paul's preached to them, not to move on to other things. Because it's only through the gospel that we've been delivered from God's wrath, and it's only through the gospel that we're, we're, we're presently being saved and we'll be finally saved. It says we cling to Christ, and so this is what the Christian life is about. This is what we do. This is why we gather on the Lord's day. This is what we're, the ways we're to be encouraging one another. This is why we come and eat and drink at the table. This is why we sing songs of, of Christ and His work. This is why we, we do all of these things. It's to, it's, to, it's to continue to believe and deeply trust Christ and what He's accomplished for us. To put our, our hope there. Tenaciously clinging to this message that Paul preached and he received. And we've received through him. And so the big headline is that through the gospel, they're saved. We're saved. That's what he's saying. Not, it's not through morality. It's not through our, our vows. It's not through our commitments. It's not through a reformed life. It's, the, it's a message. It's a message that has power to save. The gospel is the power of God, Paul tells the Romans, to, uh, for salvation to everyone who believes. This is why we must hold fast to it. And this is essentially... As you read through the New Testament, in particular, it's what every New Testament letter begins. This is how it begins. They're, they're, the, the writer is calling us to the gospel. This is what it is, and then he's working out the implications. But hold to this. Cling to this. See everything through this. And then fourth, in terms of the nature that we have to remember, the gospel is of first importance. It's of first importance. See it in verse 3 there. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So it's first, not not first in sequence, but first in significant importance. So it's not just like you want to build a house. The first thing you do is you got to get the foundation right, um, which is obviously important. But then you go on to other steps. So when you after you built the house, and maybe this is you can think of this with uh, there's a lot all the reconstruction there. When you when you build a house, you're you're not thinking consciously of the foundation anymore. It's just kind of there. It's it's sort of. That was step one, and then you moved on, and then you've got the house that you live in. You're not thinking, I live on a foundation. So that's not what he's saying. The gospel is not simply like a foundation. It, it, it's not first in the sequence. It's, 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 it's not that. It's, it's like the rich, fertile soil that you've been planted in. And you continue to draw throughout your life nutrients and nourishment from that soil. It's of it's first importance. This is your whole life. This is what you're doing. You're drawing drawing on this and continually being nourished by the gospel. Or we could say the gospel isn't just kind of the ABC of the Christian life. This is where you begin and then you move on to bigger things. No, it's it's everything. It's A to Z. It's not just the stuff for baby Christians to, to, to kind of get them in the door and to get their feet under them and get them walking. No, it is soul nourishment for the, for the newest believer and the most mature believer among us. This is where we, this is where we live. This is what we What's to be always of first importance to us? Just think of how does this show up in our life? Is there, is there have been there have, been, have there been times? Is there a time right now where there's a, a marked joylessness in your life? Just a, a weariness, um, a, a lack of a fervor for the Lord and for the things of the Lord. Maybe um, what if you if you think that the gospel is simply elementary? It's just kind of basic stuff. It's not life-giving truth for your soul today. When you have those times of joylessness, where are you going to turn? You're going to turn elsewhere. You're going to be looking for something else. And you're going to be looking for, for, for something 
that your soul desperately needs, but you're not going to find it because what, what the Lord is holding out to us is here it is, it's Christ. Just, just find nourishment in Him. We will go through those dry times, but, it's, but it's, it's not going to looking outside of Christ, it's coming back to Him. Trusting Him. Maybe, you're, maybe the fears and the doubts that you wrestle with, the, the lack of assurance of salvation that plagues some of us. Maybe it, 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 it could be a result of looking outside Christ for joy, for hope, for peace. Instead of to the thing that's of first importance, Paul says, that we're never to stray or wander from the gospel of Christ. So he wants us to understand the priority, that the priority that we must all constantly take hold of and apply to our hearts is this message, this message. And that will never cease to be true. So we need to remember the nature of the gospel. That's the first thing. It is a message. It's a message that's communicated in words. Believe. It's a message that Paul didn't invent. It's from God. It's, it's, it's a message that saves and has the power to save. It's a message of first importance, not elementary, but it is for us every day until we see the Savior face to face. That's first thing. Second, we need to remember the simple but profound content of the gospel. The second thing he calls us to remember. So after telling us what kind of thing the gospel is, namely a message, he goes on to show what the contents of this message are. So you see it, first thing, it centers on a person. This is a message that centers on a person. On a person. Not, and that person that it centers on, it's not you, it's not me, it's Christ. You see it, the gospel, verse 3, that Christ died. Christ was buried, that Christ was raised. This is, it's a message that centers on Jesus. The, the gospel is not your personal testimony or my personal testimony. Those are not synonyms. You understand that? It's not my story. Telling your story, telling your testimony can be a very helpful thing to do in the context of sharing the gospel. But the gospel is this announcement. It's this definite thing with this definite content about Christ. It centers on Jesus. And so the gospel is not the offer of a change to life. It's not the gospel that, that if you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be different for you. Now, the changed life is not the gospel, but a changed life will be an effect of the gospel in your life. Those aren't the same. The gospel is not something to be done. It's not do this. But the gospel, there are obligations that the gospel presses on everyone who hears it to believe, repent. The gospel is not a transaction. It's not if you do this, if you vow this, if you surrender, if you act this way, if you sign this card, you'll be saved. That's not it. But Paul says, it's not, it's not my story. It's not your story. It's Christ's story. It's a, it's a message about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. It's that Christ died. Christ is the one that the message that Paul preaches, he brings to us. He's the one our hearts so desperately need. This is, this is what the message centers on Christ. Secondly, the message answers our greatest predicament. It answers our greatest predicament. Why did Christ, why did Christ come? Why did Christ die? Christ died for our sins. That's a loaded expression, isn't it? That just takes in so much of, of biblical story. And so the gospel, which is good news, it makes no sense apart from the backdrop of bad news. 
so that the gospel is the answer to sin. It's an answer to our sin. That's our predicament. That it answers it. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. Said the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish, perish. It's not just physical death. That's, that's death. That's, a, that's death of punishment. Death is a, a judgment of God for sin. It's everything that's wrong in the world, everything that's wrong in your life is it has its roots in sin. This is how this is how the world went off the rails. I don't mean it's always a connection, like because this bad thing happened, it's because I sinned in this way. But I mean it's all part of the fact that we live in a world that's fallen and cursed because of sin. Sin. That's our that's our problem. It's our pride, unbelief, anger, jealousy, bitterness, lust, unforgiveness, greed. Laziness, idolatry, gluttony, on and on and on. God created, God, this is the story about God created this perfect world. Adam and Eve lived in this open harmony with the Lord, walking with him in the garden. And that's the way things are supposed to be. But they disobey God and humanity and all creation has been reeling from the effects of the fall ever since. We are born into this world, Paul says, to be dead in our trespasses and our sins. We aren't we aren't basically good people who occasionally do some not so very good things. We are born bad. We are born wicked. We are and it's because we are bad people that God and, and because God is holy and without sin that we're deserving of his wrath. That's how we're born into this world. And so while God is holy and just and must must punish sin and must punish sinners, this is this is loves us. He loves us. Not because we're deserving, but in spite of our badness, he, he loves us. And so God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ. And Christ died for our sins. This is what we're reading. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. So what makes the good news of the gospel so good is when we understand how hopeless we are Enormous predicament. That's our sin. We see the good news against that backdrop. Christ died, not as just an example of, of courage and sacrifice and love. He died for our sins. And we see that. We see how how magnificent His grace and love towards us and towards us is. So Paul says the the gospel of Jesus is so important because it's God's answer to our predicament. Third aspect of, of the content of this message is that it's rooted in history. It's a message rooted in in historical facts concerning Jesus. These are the the particular content. So it's not just about good feelings towards Jesus. I know there are, there's kind of that thought today that history is really not important when it comes to talking about the gospel and about Christianity. What matters, again, is, is Jesus' kind of example of compassion and a good life, those kinds of things. Uh, just just kind of treat the Jesus story like it's allegory, and it can be molded to mean what you, what you want it to mean. And the historicity of the gospel accounts isn't important. But no, 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 the Bible says, no, that's not true at all. The, 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 
the historicity of this message, it matters infinitely. So here's the essence of the gospel. These are the objective facts that he says here. The gospel is this, that Christ died, he was buried, and that he rose, was raised on the third day. He died. Really? Died. He all of the bad news of my sin judgment was poured out on Jesus instead of me. He died. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, and he punished him on the cross. So he was identified with our wickedness and our rebellion, and he embraced the role of sin bearer for us in love, and he died. He died on the cross and poured his righteous just wrath on our sin on his son utterly quenching that that fury that we deserve he died and he was buried that's not an incidental detail that, that it's this is a first importance paul says that he was buried this is why it's in the apostles creed that it's very explicit that that we believe he was buried and so our eternal salvation rests on the fact that the tomb was occupied before it was empty. He was really dead. He was buried. And he rose again. Now, there's hardly anybody, that seriously anyway, that, ta- that, that denies the first two of those statements, that Christ died and was buried. Um, that he really existed. This, this man, Jesus, really existed. He was crucified on a cross and that he was buried in a tomb. No serious historians really question those facts. Um, and the, the, if you claim those facts aren't true, you can hardly claim that anything is true in history, because there's really not anything uh, in history that is that that is better attested to than those facts. Uh, it, it has been recorded more than any other event. So, but the fact that there was a man who lived two thousand years ago and then died—it's not good news. That in itself isn't. The fact that he was a great teacher isn't really that big of news. There have been many great teachers, religious and moral teachers. The fact that he founded a religion doesn't make him super unique. The fact that he hung on a cross and was crucified even though he wasn't at fault isn't the first. One thing that really makes Jesus utterly unique, different from every other great figure in history, is this is the is the empty tomb. He was raised. Be looking at, of course, next week. But it, so this is what I want you to see: is that the gospel. It's 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 historical facts. It's a message that that is rooted in these in, in history. This is why uh, Martin Luther uh, spoke of the gospel as being outside of us. It's outside of us. It's this announcement. It's this message. That's it's outside of us. It's not a feeling we have. It's outside of us. In other words, our relationship before God. It's not dependent upon how we feel in any moment. It's not, it doesn't depend on how sorry we are for what we've done. It's, it doesn't even matter how sincere we are, how many good works we've done. Our salvation depends on what Jesus did for us in our place. It's outside of us in that sense. Our salvation was accomplished for us on a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago. One Friday afternoon, a short walk from outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was. It literally was. He was literally, his body was literally buried, put in a tomb, laid in a tomb. He literally was raised 
three days later, died for our sins, was buried, was raised. That's what our confidence is in. That's what we trust in. So the gospel is this message about Jesus. It's a message that deals with our greatest need. It's a message that's rooted in these historical events. And finally, it's a message, this, this message of the gospel. It's God's idea from long ago. As Paul says twice in here, it's, a, it's in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not, not simply in accordance with tradition, not according to reason and rationality, not according to human philosophy, not according to groupthink, according to the scriptures. Throughout all long ages ago in Old Testament history, God has been speaking to his people about a savior who was to come. You see it all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. There would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. You see it in the sacrifice that God himself would provide in the place of Isaac. You see it in the lamb's blood that was on the doorpost beneath which God's God's, uh, people might find refuge as the avenger passes over. We see it in the work of the priest and the temple and the bulls and the blood of the bulls and goats. We we see it in the son of David who would reign on his throne and of his kingdom and of his government there would be no end. We see it in the servant of the Lord upon whom the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all and by his wounds we would be healed. Over and over and over and over the scriptures are saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This is what he will be like. This is what he will do. This is what he will accomplish. This is how he'll do it. And then you read the gospel accounts in the New Testament and they're all punctuated by this refrain. This he did in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is is God's idea from long ago. Everything that happened. The gospel is not ours, something that we created and kind of pieced together. It's God's idea and it's in accordance with the scriptures. Remember the nature of the gospel. Remember the content of the gospel. The third thing that Paul says to remember here is this compelling proof of the gospel. We'll be quick here. Verse 5. So Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, to more than 500 brothers at one time. Many of those are still living at the time he's writing this, this letter. Um, he appeared to James, he appeared to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul, one untimely born. This is what Paul's saying. This is the, the authentic gospel, this message of Jesus. It is this message of Christ crucified and risen. You can trust this. You can really trust it. This Jesus I've been preaching to you, Paul said, he actually appeared. Appeared. You can, you can go find these witnesses. You can Talk to them for yourselves. You can listen to them and ask them. You, we've, we've seen him. I've seen him with my own eyes. I've, I've met Jesus alive from the grave. This is, you, can, you can trust this. And this, is how, this is how the New Testament writers spoke. This was very important to them. This is how Luke began his gospel account. If you remember, he, he's compiling, he says, quote, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And he does that using firsthand accounts of 
eyewitnesses. And he's writing these down in this for orderly account. There are, there are actual witnesses to these things. Because these really happen in history. John begins his first letter the same way. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and we've touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. He's saying, Paul's saying here to the Corinthians, this isn't make-believe. You didn't make this up. It's not myth. It's not fairy tale. It's, it's not the same kind of thing that you hear in the mythology of the Greek pantheon, which the Corinthians were so accustomed to. No, this is something else entirely. This is history. You can, you can, you can trust this. This is testable fact. It's not truthy. It's not factish. It is, it is truth. You can take it to the bank. There are witnesses. He appeared. Can you trust the gospel? Of course you can. This is what Paul said. Now, this follow-up question is, should you trust the gospel? And that's what he answers next. And, and, and with his own story. So this is the last thing that he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember the grace and power of the gospel. Remember it's grace and power. So remember back in verse 2, Paul said to the, to, to the Corinthians there that they, 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 they've trusted, when they trusted in the message, it did something amazing in their lives. They're, they're being saved by this message. And so now... He's saying, if you want to know what that looks like, what it means, let me tell you my own story. This is what he does in verses 9 to 11. Here's he's showing, using himself to, to show the immense power and grace of the gospel. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He, he hated the church. He was, we would call him today, a religious terrorist. He, 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 he was traveling over land and sea to arrest and to persecute anybody who followed Jesus Christ. He was not a seeker. He was not somebody who was just kind of sliding towards Christianity slowly. Not at all. He was hostile, as hostile as it's conceivable to be against the gospel. And on one of his trips on the road to Damascus, we know the account in Acts, he, he's going there to harm and kill Christians. He met the risen Christ. And so he says, it's, it's just, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And he, he's not holding himself up here, you know, it wasn't in vain and I, I worked harder than anyone. That's, he's not pounding his chest here, he's just saying, listen, it's grace. It's grace. He stopped me in my tracks. He arrested my life and let's just, we could spend the rest of the morning and the whole day just testifying if we have any shred of understanding of, of, of who we are and, and how we came to be who we are in Christ, it will just be, it's not, I was really good and I was this and I, I worked. I, it's grace. It's grace. Amazing grace. And so suddenly he, he sees Jesus alive from the dead. The, the persecutor of the church becomes a preacher of this gospel. So by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace toward me was not in vain. I, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was in me. Here's what that means for us. If It means that if grace, if the message of the risen Savior, if the gospel can take someone like Paul and stop him and turn him 
and change him so radically, don't you think the gospel can do the same for you and me? This is what he's doing. This is the case he's making as Corinthians. When we believe the gospel, when we trust Jesus, everything changes. We go from death to life. We go from darkness to light. We go from being without God, without, without hope, without God in this world, to becoming children of God, members of his family. We, we go from outside to inside. We belong now. We go from being cut off to having access to the throne of grace. We, we now have the spirit of the risen Christ dwelling, living in our hearts. So he says in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What, what a state. This, this is what I preach. This is what you believe. This is what it takes. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I know there are people looking to do a thousand of other things. A thousand other things. Trying hard. Being, going to church every Sunday. Trying to be a good person. Trying to dig dig yourself out of the mess you've made in your life. Seeking to offset your faults by good deeds. And maybe in the end it will kind of all come out in the wash. Paul's saying all that's futile. This message I preach, you believe. That's why you're being saved. The good news of Jesus, listen, it's all you need. It's all you need. If you'll rest the weight of your life, of your hope, of your confidence, your trust, your eternity on Him, then you, like the Corinthians, like Paul, will know this grace and you'll be saved. And one day you'll be saved at last. You can can trust Jesus. You should trust Jesus. That's what he's saying. Will you trust Jesus? Are you trusting him today? And if you're not, I, I invite you, I, I exhort you, encourage you to trust him today. Believe this message. Christ died for your sins. You were in a predicament that you couldn't dig yourself out from under and Christ moved towards you in love. He died for you. He was buried. He really died. and He was raised conquering the grave for you took it all on himself and he did it for you. Will you trust him? Will you, will you quit trying to earn and quit trying to achieve something from him and trust him? Believe this message. Believe Christ. So Paul's saying to us, he's saying to the church, remember. Remember the gospel. It's nature. It's content. It's compelling fruit. It's, it's amazing power and grace. Remember the gospel. What are we doing now as we come to this table? We're remembering. This table is all about remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. We aren't just thinking about and looking at uh, kind of these facts of the gospel when we come to table. We're, we're sitting under them in our remembrance of, of Christ together. i just give you two statements to help us as we come to the table in a moment and eat and drink together. The first one is this. Is everything we've been talking about, all that... All that we've, all, all the, the contents of the gospel, and we've said this already, but let me just reiterate it. Jesus did all of this for you. He did it for me. He did it for us. Jesus suffered, died, was buried, rose again for us in our place. This is what the table reminds us of. This is my body, Jesus says, broken for you. This is. This cup is my blood shed for you. 
It's for us, for not just, listen, not just for you privately, for you individually. Yes, it's true. Jesus died to reconcile you individually to him by faith. But but it's also for us. It, it purchases a people. It creates a church. You see this in many places in Scripture, but Acts 20, in, in the context of Paul's exhorting uh, the, the, the believers, these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all of the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care what for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood to the, the church, the community of believers, us together. We were obtained, purchased, bought by the blood of Christ. So we're we're not just bought individually, though we are, but we're bought and to be brought together as a church into fellowship with one another. So we're the people of God, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different struggles, all kinds of different stories, different hopes. But we're here together in, in unity as trophies of his grace. He purchased the church. And together we are we are the blood bought church standing not on on account of the righteousness of our own. There's nothing at all we've done to earn it. No goodness to be boasted in our collective boast is what we were singing earlier. It's Christ and Christ alone. All that Jesus did, all that he accomplished was for us. And the second statement is this, is what Jesus did for us, it was enough. It was enough. He didn't come, suffer, die, rise again, as we've been looking at this morning, to give us a good start in, in dealing with our sin before God. To give us kind of a, 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 a head start, a boost. He didn't, he didn't do most of the atoning, atoning work just to leave us to kind of finish up the last little bit. Just a little touch-up work. No, Jesus said on the cross what? It is finished. It's done. Jesus paid it all. He, what he did, it was enough. Everything necessary to atone for our sin, to deal with our greatest predicament, to reconcile us to God, has been done by Jesus. And so we trust him. We rest in him alone. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the table. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is it's finished. And so we come and from that from that place of security of, of security, we can we can resist sin like never before. That doesn't make us apathetic. It, it, it shouldn't ever make us think, ah, sin's not that big of a deal. No, it, we see sin as being a bigger deal than we ever conceived it to be before. But it's it's always against the backdrop of grace. And so as we come, Jesus invites us to eat and drink and remember mind you brothers of the gospel remember Jesus died for our sins he was buried he was raised again on the third day seen by witnesses all this was for us and all of this that he did for us was enough let's pray Lord would you help us as we as we put the bread to our lips in a moment as we drink the cup that, that this remembrance would would sink into our hearts, Lord, not just as us sitting there individually before you, yes, that, but us together as a church, that we would, we would share in this corporate remembrance and preach to one another the gospel as we share in the, in the bread and the cup together uh, now and, and remember Jesus. So, Father, help us to remember that you, you have done this for us and you have what you've done for us is enough, Lord.
pray in Jesus' name.